You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. When I was a kid, I wanted to be Inspector Gadget. That doesn't surprise me. He was like, he's kind of like a Swiss Army man in which that he has anything like, go, go, Gadget Cupta. And he flies up, a helicopter pops out of his head. That's amazing. Yeah. Or obviously, go, Gadget Hands. That's perfect because you can totally grab a drink of water when you're sitting down. It was always, it was always, although he was kind of an idiot. And I always thought this was weird, Dan. I mean, he worked with his, his niece. That's weird. Yeah. Like she's a, you know, a small child. Like, I don't know. Actually, I never got an age on her. Yeah. He worked with a niece and a dog and a dog, which is just a really weird thing to do crime solving with. And I wonder if she was paid or if she was babysitting him. Mm. How did he become Inspector Gadget? I realized that this was the, like the junior varsity or like the PG or rated G version of RoboCop, which is, you know, another thing where a person becomes part human and part robot or uh, mm-hmm. was that a cyborg? Yeah, I don't know what RoboCop was, but I do like that you brought up the the concern about child labor laws in Inspector Gadget because that's right. it seems no weird. One, it's the thing no one's talking about, right? It's off the radar. It was something that it was just put out there, and we never discussed it. We just watched Penny solve crimes with Inspector Gadget. This, and I was thinking about technology, mm-hmm. and why can't I have like a, a Go Go Gadget something or other in 2017? I figured. They can send the person to the moon, but can't they just make me get water a lot easier than walking? Those limitations of being human, Michael. I think you're going to have to live within the constraints for a while. till they come up with the machines. I'm, I'm in the middle of actually reading a book, Sherry Turkle's Alone Together. She wrote it a few years ago, and it's all about how like we're starting to identify machines as being more human. It's basically every dystopian movie about machines. Right. Yeah, Her, if you ever saw the movie Her. No, I have not seen that one yet. What are you trying to get at here? Would you like to have go-go gadget arms in your classroom as like kind of one of your main ways to integrate technology? I mean, I realize that, you know, we have your iPads and, and your projector things, but like, <laughs> but sometimes I just wish that there is more integration, like seamless integration, kind of like I was a human with, you know, teaching gadget parts. <laughs> you know what? Let's just, I feel like we need to bring in our guest right now to help us center this conversation on something that our audience can find useful, even if imagining you as a half robot, half Michael Milton is Great entertaining. Teacher, that's... And maybe it'll happen. You know, maybe it'll happen. The technology may come. But until then, we'd like to welcome we to the podcast. The <laughs> we'd like to welcome in Rafranz Davis. Welcome. Hi. I love the fact that you started out talking about Inspector Gadget because that was my favorite cartoon growing yes. up. And I, too, was just infatuated with Inspector Gadget. His tech was just completely on point. But I was a huge fan of Penny. Penny right. was the smart one. Penny is the one that actually solved the crimes while he just happened to accidentally do it and get credit for it. So yeah. I, I'm so glad we have that in common. But that was a great way to set the tone for this conversation. Ooh, is that, See, I, I never caught the like maybe gender uh, critique in Inspector Gadget. Penny does all the work and, and the guy gets all the credit. Oof. 
She did, but she loved it. She, you could, you could tell. Like mm-hmm. it was something that she loved to do. I don't know if she ever got paid. I hope that she <laughs> did. But you know what? She got to play around with some pretty cool tech while also saving her uncle, Inspector Gadget, and and the world. Really, like Penny is a world changer. Absolutely. Refrance, can you tell us a little bit about your background in education? Sure. I uh, actually grew up in a small town, Texas, a little town called Ennis, which is about 30 miles south of Dallas. I went to high school and taught in the same school that where I went to high school there in Ennis. Like when I went to college, I always knew that I wanted to go back to my community to teach. I started out teaching math. I taught middle school math first and then a student of that I had at the time clearly needed me in order to graduate. So I made the leap to high school math to make sure that he graduated. And that's a whole story in and of itself. Wow. Uh, and he did, by the way. But so I stayed there for, I don't know, about 10 years, I think. I've lost count. Uh, and then I you know, decided to take a new role as a math strategist at a school in Grand Prairie. And then from there to be a, a district technology specialist in Arlington. And now I am in Lufkin ISD in East Texas as the executive director of professional and digital learning. That's an awesome title. I like that. <laughs> it is long. I, I, I want to change it sometimes, but I usually just get by without using it at all. I feel like you're pretty well known in a lot of the ed tech world. I see you always giving talks and I see your tweets popping up. Everyone's retweeting you. I mean, so what work have you been doing? Because it's certainly catching on. Mostly, you know, I've been really passionate about what brought me to this point. When you're telling your life story and how you got into teaching, you tend to get to leave out the messy pieces, right? I was the first teacher of color hired in my high school that was not a coach. I was the only black teacher that my black students ever saw. And that is our students were not in athletics and they didn't see any. And, you know, coming into technology, I immediately noticed that I might have been the only person who looked like me sitting in a room, in a training room or sitting in the back of one, really, where, you know, there were certain people pulled to share their knowledge or share what they knew and others just weren't. My passion kind of stemmed from my own experiences where I fully believe in inclusive networks and inclusive learning and making sure that every person feels a part of it and every person feels empowered to feel a part of it. And so when you're seeing probably me tweeting or blogging, a lot of it has to do with diversity and access and equity because that was my experience even as a young child. How are we doing on those fronts in the tech world? <laughs> you know, it's it really interesting because sometimes it feels like we're doing well, like there's improvement, you can tell. And then sometimes you'll click a link and you see a panel of all white men talking about diversity. No women even. Oh, and goodness. and then you're like, what? Like, did we not just discuss this? Like, why, why are we still talking about this? But just for every one of those moments, there are also moments where you can sit back and go, this is really happening. Like, people are listening. And those moments to me seem to outweigh some of the bad moments. I mean, for a while, I considered just walking away from this whole tech um, world kind of entirely because I got tired of it. And I got tired of talking about it. 
But the more that I connected with others who were like me and in our private networks, we hold a private network of people of color in that tech, the more that I realized that not only was my voice necessary to continue to move the needle, but the more that I spoke, the more that others felt more empowered to speak up to, and also to do the work to get into these spaces, but more importantly, into the school district roles where we can have the greatest impact on kids. Well, I appreciate the work you've been doing because as educators, we're the ones I think that often can speak best about what works in the classroom and what should happen in a classroom. And I know you've done a good job of calling out some programs, you know, and some games that that haven't. And in particular, I always remember that you pointed out U.S. Mission, which asked students to be in situations where they would be an enslaved person and they would have to act out decisions. And I think it's so important for us to critique putting students in those positions of of oppression and violence and tragedy because they can't understand it. You're still playing a game. Well, the interesting thing is you have to remember game developers are still tech. And the issue is the greater tech industry. For example, I went to a hackathon a few years ago that was about bridging uh, the gap or bridging the, the gap in educational gaming. And attending this hackathon were educational, not, not educational developers, but entertainment game developers. So game developers who develop for platforms that kids play every day with high definition graphic. I love my Assassin's Creed. I yeah, think that's oh, a, a, I, it's I fun to play with history. When I met their developers, I thought I was, it was as if I was meeting Beyonce. That's how excited <laughs> I was with them. But the interesting thing about this event was there was a board and I came in a few hours later and I saw on one side, all the topics that they were brainstorming around were like topics that were oppressive to a certain group of people, um, whether it be um, something on, you know, slave or something anti-women in a way. And then the others on the other side were, and anti-women's probably pushing it a little too much, but you get the gist. And the other side was like sex ed. And that was just like, I looked at that and I went, are you like, they really came in to make games for education. And this is what they thought was okay. And the person in charge was like, yeah, Franz, like we shut it down. Don't worry. I was like, okay, because you know me, I'm not going to remain quiet on these, on these issues. But, you know, that's, that's one sector, you know, gaming is not, you know, deeply embedded within education as much as it should be. But we have bigger issues with a lot of the other tech companies that create for education. They create for a particular style of teacher, but they don't necessarily create for what I would like to say is the change we're seeing in education with more project-based learning or student have agency over their work and their learning. A lot of what's created is about control and calling those moments out to me are just as important as calling out the ridiculous slave games. I think we have to do a better job of of articulating exactly what we want in education and what we want in the technology in our classrooms and not just saying, oh, yay, Google made it or Microsoft made it. Yay. (laughs) And that's what I still see a lot of that. And it is crazy to me. And we can also, as teachers, help critique the games too, right? I mean, I think any media that comes into our classroom, students should we should position them as critical thinkers about what, who made this game and how did they make it and what were their aims and what did they do wrong? What did they miss? Who's not included and not included? That, so that's a learning opportunity too. Oh, again, not just games. I'm, I mean, in all the tools we use. A while back ago, I was actually having a conversation with someone about the kind of the behind the curtains of ed tech. Uh, it was around the time when 
Peter Thiel had come out to fund the presidential campaign. And so many of us in education had no idea who he was, for one thing. But we also didn't know that a lot of our tools that we were using were funded actually by him. And I think it was a blog post by Audrey Waters that I read that I started having to read up who is this guy. And the more that I read, I looked at the tools that we were using in our district and I was like, wow, we're we're using Clever and Clever was what he funded. That was his thing. And we're plugging all of our student data into that. And it kind of made me look at some of the other tools. I, I only learned recently we're using like Dreambox Learning for Math. And that was funded by the guy that created Netflix. So I think it's important that we as educators, the pushback part is extremely important, but it's also even more important too for us to know who's making the technology that we're using in our schools to begin with and be able to ask those questions. How are you using this? What is What are you doing with our student data when they do it? Um, what is the what, end goal? What is the end goal going to be? What is the impact for you? Like what was, like we need to ask those questions and we have not, I don't think we've ever really done that. No, I, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, and, and Michael's question, how do I get my GoGo gadget arms? That's all I want. So today you're here to talk about real tech. What exactly is real tech? And is this like another Inspector Gadget thing or is this a bit different? I think it is a bit of an Inspector Gadget thing because if you I'm think in. about it, Inspector Gadget kind of made, well, he had the tools that he needed. He happened to always have the right tool he needed when something happened. Uh, but for us, especially in education, we tend to center around kind of the ed tech branded tools. If so, if we learn about it at a conference, if we read about it on an education specific blog, we watch the education specific events for the education tools. And when I look at how we use technology in the real world, when students leave us or how we use it just as people, it's not the way we do it in the classroom and not centered around at tech. So I think that for me, I feel like we should focus more on, you know, giving students the agency to do, to create what they want with the tools that they have access to, whether it be on their phones, on their computers, or whatever the case may be, but also giving them the tools of civic engagement and technology and social mindedness and technology. Even now, when I want to communicate with my elected officials, I do it through an app on my phone that someone coded that you just plug in where you are and you can write a letter right then and it sends a fax. Or, you know, I, I make videos in a heartbeat just from some random video app on my phone because I want to. Um, I look at my mother who is retired and she's sits at home and that's how she gets her news and that's how she translates her news and communicates with everybody else. And I feel like we spend a lot of time putting kids into lanes, like this is the way you use technology, but we don't really, to me, prepare them for living in a world that is so digitally connected and we have to do better by that. So engage them with real technology, pay attention to what's happening outside of the world of ed tech. Talk to people outside of this world, especially while we're trying to get kids to code. One of my other biggest pet peeves, we're, we're teaching them to code, but not talking about what that transition is like when a large percentage of the kids that we're targeting can't get a job in 
this industry because it is so biased in the way it is. So we definitely have to, we definitely have to really, I think, step away from this box that we're used to being in, in terms of educational technology and look at how does the world collaborate and communicate outside of what we do and let kids do that. My mother spends a lot of time doing this thing called jib jab in which she takes photos of me and my sisters and make us dance around. <laughs> my mother has not found that yet, <laughs> but, um, but sadly my mother is still on AOL and uh-huh. by AOL, I mean, she literally opens up a browser and goes to <laughs> AOL.com. She does. I mean, it's, it is what it is. I mean, I, yes, I used to pay for it back in the day, but the fact is that she is connected and she can, you know, access information in a way that she couldn't before. Whereas in schools, we tend to want the teacher to curate the information and the kids to pick from the information that the teacher curates. And that's not teaching them to be research-minded citizens. That's yeah. not. And the more ed tech tools that come out that are created for that particular space, the more it is frustrating that we are just agreeing that this is the way it should be. I remember when we first went to one one iPads, it was like new apps all the time. Everything was apps, apps, apps. And if I'd hear apps one more time. And my students sometimes were a bit like reluctant or sometimes like something would happen on whatever particular app, it would crash. And then that would be it. They wouldn't be able to like figure out what to do next. And so that was always kind of like, am I wasting so much time on this particular tool? And really, is this just for a one-off thing? Is this that important that they use this particular tool? Or should I give them like a portfolio of different ones to choose from or, or say like, listen, I want some sort of like video projection. However you choose to do, it's fine with you. Although, when should that instruction on how to actually use these types of apps, is that something that should be kind of integrated early on? Is that just part of the how to express yourself phase before the projects? Do you front load these? I think it depends on the age of the kid, actually, because the the reality is we don't want to put a first grader on an app with a open search that when they put in strawberry is going to give them a woman with strawberry boobs. You know that happens. So uh, I think that we have to be mindful of the age of the kid, but there's a transition time, you know, I, I think around like middle school to high school where we can have some more conversations about things that you do. The advice that I usually give to teachers is to, if you focus on the tasks that you want students to do, what are the learning goals? What are the learning targets? And let them create within the realm of those targets. Some students, you'd be surprised, might be able to show what they've learned through a song, through a poem, through a picture that they've drawn that might not use any technology at all, but it also allows them to be more creative and express what they've learned. That's a hard thing to do because we want the recipe. We want to be able to look at all the papers and grade them really quick and say, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. But that's not giving kids kind of the creative openness. My daughter went to Texas State and freshman year, she, first off, I gave her a Chromebook when she went. This was when everybody was getting Chromebooks. Only my daughter had never had a Chromebook before. So she just thought, oh, it's a laptop. Well, her teachers were assigning papers for her to do and they were, you know, she had to turn them in through Microsoft Word. Uh, When she had noticed on her Chromebook that she didn't have Word, not knowing that she could type in Google 
docs and export it as a Word document to upload. My child was walking from the library 11 or 12 o'clock at night to go do papers because she didn't think she could do it on her Chromebook. Well, I found that hilarious when I finally found out, although I was thankful she was safe, it was still kind of eye-opening to me just on, wow, like we don't even talk about intersectionality of tools and how different platforms create different things, but you can do the same thing on, you know, a select platform. Same um, thing much later, her communications class asked that all the students create a blog around any topic they were passionate about, but they had to have consistent posting over a six weeks time and document it. And she came home just kind of in tears because she was like, I don't know how to make a blog. What is that? And, you know, that was also interesting to me because I was running a blog at that time, but I didn't even occur to me that my daughter had never, she never done that. So when I said, all right, I'm just, I'm going to show you go online and I want you to search these particular terms, like certain skills that she needed in order to find the tools she needed, she didn't have. So I think I probably started down this spiral long ago with my own child and her not knowing, but it also reminded me of like schools that are only Apple schools, only Microsoft schools, only Google schools, and they never ever reach outside of that, not realizing that when kids leave them, these probably won't be the tools that they have. So we should probably talk about that. And, you know, I just, I'm glad to be in a district that is that way now. Like we, we kind of have a mixture of everything. It's easy to have one thing and control it, but it makes more sense to just use whatever we need for the moment or for the activity that we need to do. The tool for the task, the proper yep. tool for the task. Is proper tool for the task. And Michael and I have talked a lot about authentic media. You know, there's so many different, um, from podcasting to creating videos to creating, you know, infographics. Episode, episode 13. 13. That there, there's a lot that you can create, <laughs> but... I think the thing that always bugged me in schools about technology is just this assumption that it's good no matter what. And instead of thinking about the very simple question of why am I using this technology and how does it actually improve what we're trying to do? And technology can do incredible things, but if we don't ask that question, we're going to end up using our smart board all year just to show PowerPoint slides with too many words on them. So I, what, what are some examples you can maybe give us of ways that you know that some people are using real tech to do things that are worthwhile and really enhancing educational experiences in ways that wouldn't be possible otherwise. I know an inspector's niece who solves crimes. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I for me, it goes back to probably the first time I saw this in action. It was with Science Leadership Academy in Philadelphia. If you've never been to EDUCON, which is the conference that SLA throws that, that the school Chris Lehman started, then you you really are missing out on seeing what it looks like when you have civically minded students who are engaged. Uh, the students actually uh, facilitate portions of the conference. They run the conference. They help plan the conference. But more importantly, we get to spend the first day going through classrooms and seeing how they work. It's all project-based. The students, one, uh, you know, in one classroom, they were they were working on, you know, English research assignment. Another, it was a math classroom that I'd gone in and the students were charting. I don't remember what it was. It was something with geometric constructions that it was kind of digital, but in a really cool, realistic way. But 
one thing I did remember was some of the online, the animated data infographic tools that the kids were using in uh, history and civics to engage around data and what that meant to a community. So those kind of lessons were really impactful to me to see them in action. Um, It made me come back to my own classroom and rethink how I worked with kids in math. So instead of just being okay with showing a video or even the kids making a whiteboard video, because that to me is like basic entry into using a device in the classroom. I started actually challenging them to build applets for geometry around, you know, topics that we were exploring. And that was probably when I saw the difference that it was for my students when they were working on something that they believed in using a particular tool. Now, for that case, we did use a specific tool for that reason, but I also felt like that was the right tool we needed to use. And um, and the kids, you know, the outcome from that, it, we can tell what the learning targets were that the kids truly did understand it. So, I, I, you know, there are moments like that across the country where, where you see people that are using, you know, real tools, or I hate to keep using that phrase, real tools, but most of it is always centered around the topic or the subject and not the technology at all. I like it. I like the way you use that term, real tools, real tech, because I think it does recenter us around the purpose of why we're doing it. So I think that makes a lot of sense. So what advice would you have for teachers then to enact more of this real tech approach? I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give to anybody, don't even think about instruction yet. Think about how you use technology yourself. How do you access your news? How do you share with people? How do you verify resources? How do you communicate something to a neighbor, not necessarily through the realm of education? I call myself a tech nerd like crazy. So like anytime there are the big tech launch events, I watch them. I pay attention to what's happening, uh, especially around like machine learning and AI. I'm looking at my phone while I'm talking. My phone all this time has been kind of memorizing my actions and kind of growing with me as I've used it. And even though there are parts of you know, how my phone tracks what I do that I absolutely have turned off. I think it's still interesting to think that this is the kind of technology that we're using. And I don't know what place that has in our classroom. In some, To some extent, it's always been there. We just didn't know it. But at the same time, I think teachers, you need to get to know the technology that is a part of your life. You can't say it isn't. Everybody is engaging in some way. And now look at how you're engaging in that way. And now think about your students. It doesn't mean that you have to go have the students build an AI app that teaches them how to spell words. It doesn't mean that you have to do that. But it does mean that you have to be open to how the technology can help in cases where it absolutely can. And case in point, you mentioned the PowerPoint on the smart board. Well, now both PowerPoint and Google have AI built into its slide platforms, where if you put really just a a paragraph of text in a picture, and with a click of a button, it will actually reframe that slide for you so that it is aesthetically pleasing, which should help eliminate 
really terrible presentations. Now, knowing that, giving kids a template of, I want your slide to look like this is ridiculous because there's so many choices and the technology does it for you. And, and that's that, again, is a part of that conversation with teachers. You have to be a collaborator and a creator and an involved person first before, and before you're even thinking about how am I going to do this with my students or else you're going to continue doing what you've always done. I just got a, a new car and it is neat because it tells me when I'm veering off to the side, like down the highway, because it happens sometimes when you're just driving. That's kind of cool. I like it. It's a little bit around the edges. It's not driving on itself, which is kind of scary, the dr whole driverless car thing, because there's obviously the huge ramification of, well, what does that mean for truck drivers? What does that mean for the whole industry that's built around that? That's putting a lot of, displacing a lot of people out of work. And so this is how I'm bringing it back to this. So I know that like my students, you know, we teach them, okay, why don't you use citation machine or, or something to do your citations? Students sometimes do not learn what the citation should actually look like because sometimes a citation machine or son of a citation machine or whatever the heck you're using, sometimes it doesn't actually come out the correct way. So how do you kind of embrace students or, or show students that, yeah, you need to use this, but you're not, it's not going to replace you as a thinker. Adobe has this app called SparkPost and I love SparkPost because I do not have design skills at all. Um, I am terrible with knowing which colors match or which fonts go together. That's just not something I've studied. But while using it, I found that probably over the last six months, I've learned. So now I'm a bit more mindful of where I put a, a piece of text compared to a, a, an image or how I use a filter in a certain way. So I found that sometimes I might use Spark, but sometimes I'll just go design in Photoshop or I'll go design in another tool where I have to be the one that actually does that placement. So I think it's important to, to really think about those auto tools because they're not going away. They're, they are here. You can tell kids to, you need to learn it this way all day long, but the reality is in 10 years, are they really going to need to know that? No, it's, it's literally going to be right there for them. But at the same time, they need to make that comparison and look at the different outputs so that they can look at it and know, is that correct or is it not correct? And by the way, I would never get in a self-driving car. Sometimes technology does too much and we need to be able to differentiate there also. Yeah, Michael, you don't need a new robo arm or machine or whatever. <laughs> well, everyone needs to also read Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut if you've never read it. It's all about automation and us having no jobs anymore. <laughs> you know, That's not a good way to finish the podcast. <laughs> No, no, but that's, and I'm not saying it'll never replace teachers. So let me be very clear because that's personal and personal is personal. I just think we're here, period, um, regardless Hopefully. of what some tech person says. Well, if, whether I'm here or I'm in your room through AR, I'm here. I think that, you know, I just think these are things people need to talk about and, and don't ignore it. Like it doesn't relate to us. It absolutely does. Yeah, and social presence matters. You know, I do a lot of video conferencing and it's nice, but there's still a difference. It's not the same. It's, a, it's different than if we were sitting in a circle and Michael could reach out with his robo arm. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, uh, did you read Ready Player One yet? I have not, but I will uh, add it to my list. It's kind of amazing. It's going to be a major motion picture. It's like this virtual reality that people live in. And I'm not going to spoil too much of it, but they actually go to school within the virtual reality, reality world and so people are coming from all over the world. There is a teacher 
who and they all have their avatars with their skins. Some people have better skins because they're more wealthy. Uh, and you can, well, regardless, it's kind of neat. But even in the this uh, Ready Player One, there's still an actual teacher who's a part of this virtual reality world. It's not replaced by robots. So we did that. So now Facebook has released a social VR experience. I don't know if you've seen it. First of all, there's a real Facebook video. And then there's a joke face. Like, I think Jimmy Kimmel made like a making a video making fun of it. So you have to go look it up because it's hilarious. But they've done this where you're now if you wear a pair of glasses, can now be in some virtual environment with all of your Facebook friends. And I look at that going, but like literally when I was in college, we did that with Second Life. And, you know, I, <laughs> I went to class in Second Life with my instructor and the, my peers and the peers from our, our school in another town. Like we literally did that over 10 years ago. And now we're talking about it like this is brand new thing now when we've been doing that. Yeah, all of this is interesting relating to education because, again, it does come down to what is meaningful in education, which I think is relationships, being able to help individual students. Teachers know it's not just about delivering content into a student's head. And that's why you can't have one virtual reality teacher for you know thousands and thousands of people because each person needs that individual attention. If the learning is about something meaningful and hard, my bigger point here is hopefully we're not replaced. <laughs> no, I, think you, I think we're stuck with you oh michael <laughs> says that often <laughs> that is uh, accurate I well reference thank you so much for joining us today we really enjoyed the conversation and hopefully it'll help people really think a lot about ed tech um where can people find you and your work online at reference davis that's my Twitter and Instagram. And my website is refronsdavis.com, but I actually have been writing a lot more on Medium instead. Just if you find me on Twitter, you'll find me in all places. Okay. Thank you again so much for joining us today. And we hope to continue this discussion online and in other spaces, maybe in a virtual world or maybe at a coffee shop sometime. A real coffee shop, not a VR coffee shop. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Thank you again. And on the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you tweet us at Visions of Ed, if you're doing something creative in education, we will tweet back at you. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on, on Visions of Ed at iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play. And as Michael likes to say, wherever you want to be. <laughs> and of course, if you write us a five-star review, not only will we read it on the air, but my mother, she says, good job, Michael. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast, signing off. <laughs>